Welcome back to the uh, second message in our new series on the book of Revelation. And when, everybody talks, when anybody talks about the book of Revelation, we always think about the future. And Revelation does touch on the future. But in order to understand what Revelation means in the future, you have to understand what it means when it was originally given and to the audience to whom it was originally given. That means we're talking about people, Christians, who lived in the latter half of the first century and the first half of the second century. Book of Revelation is probably written by the Apostle John, who was on the Isle of Patmos, a small island, six by 10 miles. And he was put there, kind of imprisoned there, secluded there from the rest of the population where he had such a great influence in the teaching of the gospel, especially as Apostle uh, John. Uh, it was written about 95 AD. And if we're going to understand what it means, we've got to take a look today as we set up the whole series at this church, what God said to them, and what God is saying to you and me right now. The, church was, uh, the letter was written to seven different churches, unique churches, that existed in what we think of as Asia Minor. In fact, if you take your Bibles right now and open to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we'll begin our journey there together. And uh, I will use the screen now and then with verses of Scripture, some people write in and say, why don't you put all the verses there? That's because I don't want you to become screen dependent. I want you to have your Bibles with you or on you, with, you know, electronically so you get into the Word. And uh, we'll be doing that through Revelation. Look at verse 11. It says, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches. Now, elsewhere at the end of that first chapter, they're called the seven lampstands, kind of like menorahs, but seven different ones. Why? Why the symbol of lampstands? Because Jesus said we're to let our light shine so that all men can see and know the truth and the hope of the gospel. Write in a book everything you see and send it to seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, I've had the privilege of being in the ancient sites of each of those churches. Now, I want to give you a, a uh, kind of a geographical context here. This is a map of what was called Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. This is where John is, the island of Patmos. This is where he receives the revelation, which means the unveiling or the revealing. And then this letter is sent out to each of these churches where it would have been read by the pastor or leader of those churches. Now, it would have been eventually read in other churches as well, but these were more or less seven key influential churches, and so the revelation comes originally to them. Now, drop down to verse 19, and look what it says there. It says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening. So what he's saying to those seven churches is, I want you to think about What's now happening around you, what's now happening within you, that is within your church, what's happening to you. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the verse and he says, and the things that will happen. So I want to talk to you about what's happening now, but I want to talk to you about what's going to happen in the future. Now, what they didn't understand was when is that all going to happen? When is the future going to come to pass? We read in Revelation 1 how he talks about, look, he's coming is soon. Every eye will see him, it says in verse 7. We'll talk more about that later on. 
Soon, though, in Revelation 1 doesn't mean tomorrow. Soon means that when God decides to do something, it's going to happen immediately. But he's willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God waits to this very day. Obviously, he hasn't returned yet. But he is coming back someday. And so we have this sense in which God spoke to them in their time and in the future. And we have a sense that God speaks to us right now. I mean, that verse could be read right here. So well, how can that be? I mean, culture's changed, technology has changed, time's gone by. So how can that book be as relevant now as it was then? Well, it is true. Time, technology, culture, customs change. But there are certain things in the world that remain the same. In fact, they've been the same since man rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3. And so we experience some of those things right now like they did back then. And God's speaking to those issues and he's speaking to us right now. So well, what are those things? There are two things that become prominent in the book of Revelation. One of them is suffering. The Christians to whom this was originally written were men and women who were suffering. They were being persecuted for their faith. In some instances, the persecution was not severe. In other instances, it was, it was beyond severe. It was terrible what they were going through. Now, when I talk to you about the church being persecuted, the early church, a lot of people, they know their history, think about Nero and how Nero was, you know, the guy who persecuted the Christians, kind of has a reputation for it. It's at his hands that Paul dies. It's at his hands that Peter dies and many Christians died. But it was localized to Rome. It was localized to Rome. We're not talking about a period of time that is far later. We're talking about the emperor Domitian now from 81 to 96 AD. He was assassinated in 96 AD. When this letter is given, it is given to people who, are, who have lived and are living under Domitian's influence and those that will come after him. And Domitian, under him, persecution was empire-wide. Now, Domitian had it out for the Christians for a couple of reasons. One, he considered himself to be Lord and God. Usually, an emperor was deified after he died, and then people would worship the emperor. But he didn't want to wait till he died. He said, worship me now. That meant Christians had to go to their local temple that was built in honor of Caesar and once a year offer incense to Caesar and proclaim Caesar as Lord. There are people watching you to see if you show up and do this. And if you don't show up and you don't do it, you're reported. Domitian was also into the Roman way of everything. Roman idols, uh, Roman paganism, uh, the feasts and the immorality that went with it. He wanted everybody to follow the Roman way. And so there were always eyes in every city to make sure that you were following the Roman way. And nobody wanted to get on the bad side of the emperor. So you tried to keep your community in line. Otherwise, Roman soldiers showed up, and that was never a good thing. So imagine these Christians are facing persecution if they don't honor God, if they don't, or I mean, if they, uh, they face persecution if they do honor God. So well, how were they persecuted? Well, I can give you a couple of ways we know from history. Some were taken and their limbs were tied to, for instance, horses. My leg, my arm tied to this horse, my other leg, my other arm tied to that horse. Then they would beat the horses, which then obviously go in opposite directions and literally tear you apart. Some had holes drilled in their skulls and hot molten lead was poured in. Some, and this was a favorite from Nero, would impale Christians alive and then cover them with pitch and then set them on fire like a light. 
Others were fed to the lions. It was brutal times. Not everybody faced that, but it, it, you know, many did. These were brutal, brutal times, all because you won't bow to Caesar as Lord, you won't partake of the immorality of the day, and because you are living out your faith and following Jesus Christ. Not obnoxiously, not militantly, you're just trying to follow God. Well, today, people still face persecution around the world. I've met them. I've told you about that. I've heard their stories. I've seen their scars. As you and I meet freely here and take for granted the opportunity to worship God, there are people today who are huddled underground, so to speak. And they have to be very secretive, lest word get out, and they, you know, their, their lives are taken. And many of them under, have their whole churches burned down or ostracized, and I won't go into that because I talked about it last weekend, but it's happening all around us. And I would venture to say it's even beginning to happen here, not to a level of severity like that. But listen to what Paul wrote to Timothy, who lived and pastored in Ephesus where one of the letters went. Paul said to him, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So he said, it's just, just accept the fact, Timothy, if you try to really honor God and live for God, you're going to have some persecution at some level. Which those of you who have students, those of you who are students, know that you face in your life, from your peers and from others. Do you try to really live for the Lord and honor God the way you keep yourself and behave yourself? You're going to be made fun of. You adults know that. You'll get made fun of by family members, by coworkers, by others, if you really try to live out your faith. Now, when I say living out your faith, I'm not talking about being political. I'm not talking about being judgmental and obnoxious like some folks are. I'm just talking about trying to be like Jesus, live like Jesus. You're going to get some pushback these days in the culture that we live in. And so that was going on in the world at that time. It certainly is going on in the world at this time. We've been pretty immune from it, but who knows what is to come in the days ahead. The other thing that they were dealing with was heresy or false teaching. And the false teaching was coming from actually within the church as people began to deviate from the truth, the word of God. And this would become almost infectious. And so the book of Revelation is, is written to deal with that issue and to remind Christ's church. Christ reminds his church to stay on course. Hold to the truth. Now, uh, this week I want you to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Next weekend's Father's Day. I'm doing a different message for Father's Day. And then we'll be back in Revelation again. But this week, your assignment is to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and I want you to read what Christ specifically says to those seven churches. Because he deals with the issue of persecution there, but he also deals with the issue of false teaching. And in two of the churches, there are these people called the Nicolaitans. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? We don't know a lot, but what we can gather from, from scriptures and from other writings is that they kind of went around from church to church representing themselves as apostles like Peter, like Paul, like John, and saying to the people, for instance, we need to practice, they didn't use these terms, but we call it syncretism. That is, it's okay to blend together all forms of worship. Yes, worship God in Christ Jesus, but you can bow down to Caesar and you can worship your favorite God or goddess. It's okay. It ultimately all gets back to God anyway. Do we hear anything like that today? Or they would say to the people, look, in uh, the liberty that Christ has given to us, 
because we're saved by grace and God forgives our sins, the sins of the body no longer really matter. So it's okay to live life the Roman way. It's okay to go back into those temples. It's okay to you know, practice immorality. Of course, you had opposite extremes who said, you must deny your body. You, you, know, you can't have any desires. You got to go out and sit on a mountain and be isolated and beat your body and discipline yourself. So that's another extreme. And that's what the people were facing. Ever since the church was founded, it has always struggled with people who deviate from the truth, whether it's pastors or leaders or congregants or authors, or in our case, you know, people on television, promoting things that are not in line with the truth. So I want to share with you some of the, the kinds of heresies that we wrestle with in the church today. One idea is that Jesus is just a good guy. Now I hear, especially younger millennial Christians, not all by any means, but many, who kind of had that perspective about Jesus. I mean, really, what's the difference between him and Confucius and Buddha? I mean, they all meant good, right? So if you want to follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Another heresy is don't take the Bible too literally. I mean, the Bible is an evolving document. And so it meant something for the time it was written, and it means something different for our time. And we've got to make sure that the Bible and culture are relevant to each other. So when it comes to marriage or sexuality, the Bible meant something in that time for that, those people. Maybe that's more an opinion from some of the apostles rather than from God. Culture has changed. Time has changed. Sexuality has changed. Therefore, we need to adapt. Or another one would be that, you know, in the end, all good people are going to go to heaven. I mean, I, I would let good people into heaven, so if I'd let good people in heaven, I'm sure God's going to let good people into heaven. There's going to be second chances after people die. Don't worry about it. You just try to live a good life, and we're all going to show up. Or another heresy we see in the church, which is very different than what I just mentioned, is God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. So if you'll, if you'll send a seed offering into my ministry, right, just make it out to, okay, um, I'll be praying for you. Look, I'm going to pray with this whole stack of envelopes I received, and you have health and wealth. If you don't have health and wealth, it's because you don't have enough faith. Anybody ever heard that? Right? So it's all, this, is all, you know, this is going on this very day. And the Lord shows up, and he says, listen, stop listening to the wrong sources. In fact, you go back and hear what uh, Paul says uh, in, in Acts. He warns the Christians ahead of time that these things are going to happen. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, So guard yourselves and God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock as church. Purchase with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out, Paul says. That's what Jesus is saying in Revelation is, watch out. And I keep going back to the words of Solomon that we've looked at for a couple of weekends. I've kind of brought this verse back and back again. You know, Paul, or Saul, excuse me, Solomon who lived eventually an immoral life and Solomon, who blended all kinds of religions in, when he gets to be an old man, he looks back at his life and he realizes how he messed up. He says, I now realize this. And he writes and he says, here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands. 
for this is everyone's duty. He says, God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. So Solomon gets to the end of his life, and he says, look, I realize now that life comes down to honoring God in everything and obeying his commands. When Jesus confronts the seven churches, we hear this refrain used over and over again in chapter 2, verse 7. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen up, you guys. Don't forget the truth. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, but evil people and impostors will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. So let's step back for a moment. Are you experiencing persecution in your life these days? Or let's even take a past persecution. How about just suffering? Are you suffering? Disease? Are you suffering financially, emotionally, relationally? What kind of suffering are you going through in your life? How are you handling that? Do you find yourself wrestling sometimes with these false teachings, these false notions? Do you sometimes just, with, you know, do you want to kind of collaborate with the culture, even though you kind of know it's not right, but, man, life would be a whole lot easier if we just all kind of agreed and got along with each other? You feel tempted that way sometimes? That's what the early Christians were dealing with. And so Jesus presents himself to them. And he says to them, listen, I'm in your midst. I know all this stuff is going on, but I'm in your midst. And I'm watching what's happening around you. I'm watching what's happening to you. And I'm watching what's happening within you. And I want you to hear me. I am Lord of my church. I am the lamb who came and was slaughtered and I take away the sins of the world. But I got to tell you something. I'm also the lion who's coming back to settle the score. And I expect my church in between to honor me because I paid a dear price. So I want you to listen to Jesus, because it's pretty amazing how he presents himself to them and to us. And when's the last time you thought about Jesus this way? I, I don't want to apologize for this, but sometimes I, f- I feel like, you know, all we want to do is we want to hear about how compassionate, how loving, and how kind, and how gracious Jesus is, which he is, which he is, and which his followers are supposed to be, that's you and me. There's no room for for bullying and orthodoxy that's harsh and condemning and judgmental. But I have to also remember that Jesus is a warrior. He's also the lion, the Bible says, the lion of Judah. And someday he's going to bring judgment. So with that in mind, think of this composite picture of Jesus beginning in verse 4. This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. The sevenfold spirit is the Holy Spirit. Sevenfold, his perfection in ministry. And from Jesus Christ. So now we have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's like the whole Trinity is focused on planet Earth. The whole Trinity is focused on God's church like it is now, like he is now. And from Jesus Christ, he is the faithful witness to these things the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. 
all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. That's the lamb. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God, his father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Now come down to verse 12. John says, when I, heard, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, this is the voice of Christ, he says, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. That's the church. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, accumulated wisdom. And his eyes were like flames of fire. He pierces, he sees through everything. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, the picture of a warrior. And his voice thundered like a mighty ocean. Those are, that's his authority. He held seven stars in his right hand, the leaders of the church. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, that's his word, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. That's his holiness. And then verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and the grave. What an amazing presentation Jesus gives. He's displaying his glory to John and to us as John describes it. In essence, what he's saying is, John, Christians, church, listen to me. You may be going through difficult times in your life. You may be facing all kinds of temptations, but keep your eyes on me. I'm in control of the world. It's all coming together according to my plan. Though mankind sinned and rebelled and tried to take the universe hostage that direction, I'm pulling it all in the right direction. I need you to be faithful to me. So wake up. Be alert. And I think if Jesus were to speak to the American church today, one of the things he would confront us with is our apathy, our consumerism. I think he'd say to us, wake up. You're bought into the world. You're bought into the system of the world. You're being fooled. And I can't work through you. I can't do what I want to do through you because you're so, you're so entangled with worldly things. You're so distracted. I think that's what he would say to me, to us, to the church. I am the living Lord, he says. Wake up, wake up. And then Jesus says two very profound things. This is what I meant last weekend, if you're with me, when I said there are two things I'm going to share with you today that will help you stay on course when you're facing suffering. I don't care if it's cancer or loss of some sort or you're being persecuted, or when you're being tempted by the lies of this world. These two things can guide your life, guide your family, guide our church. Here they are. Verse 8, Revelation 1. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Then verse 17 when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, because, uh, but he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. What does Jesus mean when he says to us, and he says to you personally, I am the alpha, I am the omega. We know alpha is the first letter of the alphabet, omega is the last letter of the alphabet, Greek alphabet. What does Jesus mean when he says, I'm first and I'm last? Let's break it down. What does he mean when he says, I'm first, I'm the alpha? 
What he means is exactly that. He's first in presence. He's always been. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's first in power. There's nobody more powerful than Jesus. He's first in his Word. His Word is absolute truth and authority. He is the uncreated creator. Everything has its beginning with him. He is the first. He's the first to conquer death, risen from the dead. Now, here's the problem with Jesus being alpha. How many of you have ever heard the term alpha male? Anybody? Okay, we all have. You know, there are also alpha females, right? There are alpha children, alpha students. In fact, every one of us is an alpha. Every one of us wants to be dominant. Every one of us wants to be first. Whether we do it aggressively or passively, we all want our way. That is the sinful nature. Adam and Eve wanted to be alpha in the garden. That's why they took what didn't belong to them. That's why they disobeyed God. They said, I'm not going to wait on you, God. I'm going to make my own decisions. I will be my own alpha. And look what it's led to in this world. So here's my, here's my question to you. Who or what is your alpha point? It's a dangerous thing to begin with myself. Do you know why? I'll give you an illustration why. I want you to take your hand for a moment, and I want you to put it as close to your face, your eyes, as you can, okay? Now imagine you've never seen a hand before, and I ask you to describe what does a hand look like. You're going to have a hard time, aren't you? Okay, now take your hand. Now, every service before you guys, everybody did it with me. You guys are like, eh, what is this thing, all right? Now take your hand and hold it away from you. Now you all feel guilted, all right? And now you can really tell me what your hand is like, can't you? Because you have perspective on it. It's a dangerous thing to begin with me because I don't have the right perspective of me. I need to see me from God's perspective. How does God see me? How does God look at me? And at first, it's not a pretty picture because God says I'm disgustingly sinful and evil. Who can even know the human heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 says. But the beautiful thing is God says, I want to take that ugliness away. I'm going to take it away from you and put it on my son. He's going to become you, and you're going to become him. (gasps) All of a sudden, we're transformed into beauty, aren't we? So it's really important that I start with him as the alpha, that I get the right perspective about me and about you. And about this world. So who's your alpha? Who's your alpha? What does Jesus mean when he says he's the omega or the end? What he means is he's the purpose and the reason for life. That everything is summed up in him. That all of history, as Keller says, all of history is moving into the lap of Jesus. That everything finds its culmination in who he is. That everything exists for his purpose. And even though, even though we wrecked the universe, the universe was made for him. Now, this might be a bit of an alarming truth for you. Kind of shakes me up a little bit at times to be reminded of this. But listen to this. The world does not exist for you. It does not. Others do not exist for you. Nothing exists for you and me. This world creation is not for us. It is for God's glory. It is solely for the glory of God. The question says in John chapter 1, verse 3, 
Through him, all things were made. That's Christ. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. Now look what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For in him, all things were created. John said that. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Finish it with me. And for him. And for him. Not for me. But for him, that's really hard for us to get past, let's be honest. Because we have a tendency to see everything is for us. We behave as consumers. It was all put there for us, and we get pretty disgruntled when it doesn't work well for us, don't we? But it was all made for him. And the problem is we're continually, you know, we're continually trying to fit it to ourselves. Basketball's over, the NBA's over. I don't know if you cared about who won. But when I was thinking about this message, I, was, I thought about Shaquille O'Neal. You know that guy wears a size 22 shoe? Do you know how big a 22 is? There's a little boy in one of Shaq's shoes. <laughs> he could crawl in there and go to sleep. It's huge. I mean, it's, it's funny to see a little kid trying to stand in a pair of size 22 shoes. It's not funny when we try to stand in God's shoes. But we do. Don't we? Ever heard of trying to play God? Trying to be God? Trying to make it all about us? You say, well, if everything is about God, if everything is for God, what do I have then? The answer to the question is God. You were created for God. Now think about this teaser for a moment. This really grabbed my heart a couple days ago when I was thinking about this passage. You will never be able to fit into God Do you know why? Because God is infinite. You will never fit into God, but God fits into you. Because where does he live? Where does he inhabit? He inhabits our hearts. He lives in us. Isn't that, does that blow your mind? Talk about a God who's macro infinity, yet he can become micro finite to live in us. So it happened to Mary. So it's all so it's all about it's all about purpose. So Elizabeth uh, Elliot in one of her novels brings out this idea that oftentimes in our lives we carry this mindset that God is a means to our end. And we all struggle with that. And the way she puts it, she says, if I see God that way as a means to an end, that is, God is my accomplice, God is always going to fail me. Keller puts it this way. He says, there's two ways to approach God. You can either see God as a means or an end. You better see him as the end. But I know I struggle with that. And I, you know, I... I preach to myself as much to you. Please know that. I, I, I deal with this in my own heart as well. And, and as I was dealing with this, I thought, God, is there any sense in which I'm trying to use you as a means to build a reputation for myself as a pastor of a large church? Am I trying to use you as a means for my sense of value and worth? Do we try to use God as a means for being healthy? 
Do we try to use God as a means for being wealthy? Do we try to use God as a means for success in our career, our job? Do we try to use God as a means to find that right person? If we do, if you do, you will always be upset with God. Because he says he's the end. And you and I, we are the means that he uses to the end, which, as Paul said in Colossians, is his glory. His glory. Now, at the end of our service, because I want you running out, I'm going to give you two examples from the Bible. It'll be quick. A guy that you all know very well that should have figured it out and didn't, and a guy that you know very well who did get it right. There'll be a model for you what I'm talking about, but I want to draw it out real quickly, all right? God is saying, in other words, to us, I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega. I know how to make a Greek Omega, but I'm going to use the O for now, all right? Because invariably, somebody will write me and say, here's how you make an Omega, all right? So God is the Alpha, all right? Right? And he's the Omega. So the problem is that leaves us with a question. Well, where do I fit then? Where do I fit in this whole thing? There's one Jewish rabbi I read, put it, and he's a Messianic Jew, and he got it absolutely right. He said, our place is right here. And he says, we have got to understand the concept of throughness. Just so you know, uh, just so I know you heard me, say throughness with me. Throughness, all right? What do you mean throughness? He says, I've got to understand that God Alpha wants to live his purpose through me to accomplish his omega, his glory. So what Jesus, in essence, is saying to these churches is, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're suffering. I know you face all kinds of temptations, but I just want you to be faithful and let me live myself through you and glorify myself. Don't make your deliverance the omega. Don't start with yourself. I want to use you. I want to work through you. And he's saying that to you and me. Saying that to you and me right now. I want you to be, I, I want you just to let me work through you. Whatever your situation is, suffering, persecution, whatever you're facing, temptation, difficulties, just be faithful. Remember last weekend, the cornerstone, stand on me. Let me work through you.